Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. Remember how I told you last week we had a big surprise for you? Well, here it is. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. That's right, addicts. We have added to our team. Casey has been a supporter from the very beginning, and we're super excited to have her with us to tackle some more of these cases. So, as we always say, grab a cup of coffee. And let's get our fix. In this week's episode, we are going to be talking about an international serial killer, child rapist, sociopath, while we are sipping on some delicious white chocolate mocha, iced, of course. Of course. It's the best. So this week, we are going to be shouting out Liz B., a rock B and Misty H. They have liked, commented, shared, reviewed, or donated. So thank you guys so much. We are very, very grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with our podcast. And we love you guys so much. For the chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG or on the World Wide Web at crimeaddictspodcast.com. And on our website, you'll find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations, find some delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you are an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click on our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra not every serial killer's nickname accurately depicts the nature of the person who carries it but for pedro Alonzo Lopez. The monster of the Andes sums it up concretely. He was a monster of proportions rarely ever seen on this earth, a killer whose victim count makes even the most prolific serial killer from the United States look like an amateur by sheer numbers alone. But that's not the only thing that makes this murder a truly terrifying horror. The types of victims he killed, the way in which he committed his acts, and the demented way he discussed his love for killing after the fact made Lopez one of the sickest murderers of all time. So who was Pedro Lopez? Well, let's start back at the beginning. He was born on October 8th, 1948 in Santa Isabella, Colombia. This was not an ideal place to live between the uncontrollable riots, unthinkable acts of violence, and the La Violencia Civil War that began when a popular liberal politician was assassinated. The Civil War continued on for a decade, killing over 200,000 people. Lopez was the seventh child of 13, born in squalor to mother Benilda Lopez de Castaneda and father Medardo Reyes. His mother was a prostitute in their village. His father was married to another woman at that time and was having an affair with Lopez's mother. 
Reyes was shot and killed six months before Lopez was even born when a rebellious mob attacked the grocery store he was in. This attack occurred at the beginning of the Civil War. Lopez's mother claimed to be loving and caring and that Lopez was polite as a boy and wanted to be a teacher. But Lopez said that she was cruel and abusive as she raised him. His mother was described as an overbearing woman who dominated her children with an ironclad fist. Lopez also claimed that from a young age, he would watch his mother have sex with clients and that she would let them hit on her on occasion. According to Lopez, witnessing acts of prostitution by his mother while growing up had disturbing effects on his psychiatric health. Subsequently, his mother caught him fondling his younger sister in 1957 when he was only eight years old, so she evicted him from the family home. He was exiled to the streets and ordered to never return home again. Remember, this is when the country's crime rate was 50 times higher than all the other countries in the world. Lopez was on the streets with nothing, fled to Bogota. As bleak as the situation appeared, things quickly began to look up when an older man picked him up off the street and offered him food and a place to stay. Lopez could not believe his luck and quickly accepted the offer in blind faith. Nonetheless, it was in fact too good to be true. Instead of being taken to a plush home with food and bedding, the man took Lopez to an abandoned building where he sodomized him numerous times before tossing him out onto the cold, hard streets. A trauma that apparently did lethal damage to his already twisted psyche. After the incident, he was homeless, terrified of strangers, slept in alleyways and empty village market stalls, drifting from town to town and living hand to mouth on the streets. He joined a gang of street children for protection. The gang would often fight others with knives and belts for food and places to sleep. They would also smoke bazooka, which is a type of drug derived from cocaine. In Bogota, after spending four years surviving on the streets, Lopez, was now age 12, was taken in by an American family who provided for him with free room and board and even enrolled him in a day school for orphans. At age 12, Lopez ran away after stealing money from the school. His flight allegedly precipitated by a teacher's sexual advances. There were other sources that claimed that Lopez ran away with a teacher. Even though the war was coming to an end and opportunities were becoming available, Lopez had never been skilled in any trades and held only minimal education. He spent the next six years of his life begging for food and committing petty thefts in order to survive. By his mid-teens, Lopez began stealing cars to support himself. He had little to lose and local chop shops paid him well for his services. He was a very proficient car thief and was looked up to by younger apprentices of that trade. Six years passed before the future monster of the Andes left another mark on public records, this time charged with a theft of an automobile and sentenced to serve seven years in prison. On his second day behind bars, 18-year-old Lopez was gang-raped by four older inmates. Instead of reporting the crime, Lopez fashioned himself a crude knife and went out for revenge, killing three of his assailants in the next two weeks. Authorities described the homicides as self-defense and tacked a minuscule two years onto Lopez's standing sentence. Can you imagine? That would not fly today. <laughs> no. Oh, you're going to kill three people? We'll give you a couple years. It's cool. That's not, that's not a thing in the United States. 
there's a bunch of things that we're going to see that happen in this case that I just sit back and I'm like, well, in today's day and age in the United States, none of this would fly. And it's very odd to read about because it makes me wonder like what's currently going on, you know? I caught myself so many times going through this case being like, oh yeah, they aren't in the United States. And yes, obviously, I mean, I just have to say like, obviously, because things would have been way different. I mean, granted, at that day and time, like, there were so many issues here as well. But like that, um, I don't think would fly. No. Yeah, I agree. So the killings also gained him the grudging respect of the other inmates, as we know, prison justice, that's how it works, right? So basically, nobody ever dared to disturb him ever again after this. So he got gang raped, made a knife, killed three of his four assailants. The last one got away. Um, I guess he, there was a couple of reasons as to why he let them go. Um, and one of them was that he got released before he could get to him. There was a, there was a couple different things that I saw as to why the other guy got away. But basically the point was like, don't touch me, you know, <laughs> like that sent a blaring message and nobody yeah. ever did again. His prison term had an opposite effect and only made him want to kill more. Prison time combined with his previous hardships did irreversible damage to Lopez's mind and seemed to have pushed him over the edge of what little sanity he still had. Due to mental abuse he endured at the hands of his mother during his early years, he had grown fearful of women. He found social intercourse with them impractical and fulfilled his desires through pornographic books and magazines. In Lopez's mind, his mother was to blame for all of his life's suffering and heartaches. On release from prison, Lopez traveled widely throughout Peru and started stalking young girls with a vengeance. Usually, he'd wander through the market till he found a girl that he could take to an isolated spot. First, he would rape the girl, and second, he would strangle her. His specialty appeared to be abducting children from, get this, Indian tribes. I mean, I don't know about all Indian tribes, but I know in the United States, that is not a good idea. Just going to throw that out there. So this technique actually backfired when he was captured by a group of Ayachucos in northern Peru while attempting to kidnap a nine-year-old girl. As a result of this attempted kidnapping, he was in my opinion, rightfully so, beaten, tortured, and buried up to his neck by the natives. Then, get this, guess what they did next? They planned to pour syrup on his head and let him be eaten alive by ants. I told you, don't mess with those natives. (laughs) That seems like a fair punishment, in my opinion. (laughs) Right, and like, also, the worst possible way to go. How terrible is that? Yeah. So in the middle of all this, right, they had this plan. They were, like, obviously carrying it out considering he was buried, you know, five feet under. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, we'll say that, but uh, he was saved by an American missionary. We ruin everything. So an American missionary intervened and convinced them to let her deliver him to the police. 
That's what she was telling them. Like, let me take him. I'll take him to authorities. We'll let them deal with them in the proper way, you know, the legal way. She was trying to preach that, like, the higher powers wouldn't approve of this because that's not spiritually, that's not the right thing to do and that their souls want to be at rest and all kinds of things. Anything she could do to try to get through to the tribe members. And they eventually reluctantly agreed. So... (laughs) This point in the story, it varies a little bit because this is all basically word of mouth and this is definitely a story that he has admitted to and stuff. I mean, it's come up multiple times, but it just varies a little bit depending on what resource you look into. So either one of two things happened. This American missionary who we have to remember through all of this had no idea who Lopez was. Like she just thought she was saving a man that the natives were going to murder like and do unspeakable things to him. Um, And she thought, oh, I'm saving somebody, you know, I'm being a good person. Like she obviously, right. She was a missionary. So she was trying to do the right thing. Okay. So we have to remember that she was unaware, but either one of two things happened. She either drove Lopez to the Colombian border and just set him free. Or the Indians did hand him over to the Peruvian authorities, but the Peruvian government deported Lopez back to Ecuador because they didn't want to waste their time investigating petty Indian complaints. So one way or the other, he was taken back to Ecuador and basically dropped at the border and was like, peace out. Like, just don't come back here, basically, is kind of what they said. And one way or the other, he was freed. They should have let the ants take care of him. I know. Hindsight. (laughs) Bless those ants' hearts. <laughs> oh my god. I would have been doing us all a favor. So, okay, regardless of what happened, either way, right? He was released. And after he was released, he began traveling through the countries of Colombia and Ecuador. And guess what he was doing? He was not collecting souvenirs that you buy at the store, rightfully so, right? Instead, he was abducting and murdering girls along the way. So, a terrible way to collect memories and souvenirs in my opinion but obviously in his right mind he's thinking that's definitely the way to go so police initially believed that slavery and prostitution rings and all these big elaborate schemes were were occurring behind the scenes which is why these children were being abducted and are missing that's what they thought was going on but in reality it was solely the work of Lopez and he was killing at a rate of about three girls a week. That's so many. I mean, we've done a lot of research on a lot of cases, right? And I cannot believe that rate because there are People, you know, that are like maybe once a week or once a month or a couple times a year or something like that where they have this like, I don't know, weird like fucking itch and they have to go and scratch it, right? They're little like addicts, right? But not our addicts, but they have like this need and they have to fulfill it and whatever that looks like for them, right? But for him to need to do this three times a week, that's a ridiculous rate. It's like his day job. It really is. It's not like a hobby anymore, I feel like, for him. Right. It's like routine. Yeah. Oh, well, I just got out of the shower, so it's time to go hunt. 
what is it wednesday yep today's the day like we got right <laughs> seriously like and i think you know what honestly if he could have done more i think he would have oh for sure i mean why wouldn't he you know right three a week like how is that not enough <laughs> i mean that's a ridiculous rate um in talking about this later lopez um had done an interview so he later said quote i like the girls in ecuador they are more gentle and trusting more innocent which just makes my skin crawl makes me feel like i have the ants on me they're not on him yeah it's disgusting he always searched for his victims in full daylight because he did not want darkness to hide their suffering from him when asked what he meant by this lopez explained that he would first rape his victim and then strangle them as he stared into their eyes he claimed to feel deep pleasure and sexual excitement watching their life fade before him and that the horror would even continue after their death listen to this casey you are never going to believe this he would go back to the bodies and act out gruesome tea parties with their bodies like propped up and like talking to them and playing with them like i don't know fucking dolls and these are dead little girls that he is responsible for that he digs back up and has tea parties with what the fuck kind of shit is that it's like a movie like this can't be real yeah no it's so disgusting but my question is when he was like out there with a shovel digging these bodies back up right there was Mm -hmm. nobody that like saw him and they're he's they're like hey he's playing tea party with a bunch of dead people like there's nobody that came across that apparently not we talked about his rate he killed so many people how many times i mean i'm sure he went back and played tea party more than once you know like he did it a lot nobody saw that and was like that seems strange like you know what i mean like right yeah it seems like somebody should have damn oh man i don't know but that visual is not pleasant for me okay so in april of 1980 A flash flood near Ambato, Ecuador, caused authorities to take a second look at their missing persons cases when the raging waters unearthed the remains of four missing children. So they were in one grave. They got unearthed by this raging flood. And so then they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are a whole bunch of the missing kids. Let's go back and relook at this case. While it was difficult for them to determine the causes of death, They concluded that the girls had obviously met foul play since someone had gone out of their way to hide their bodies from prying eyes. Days later, Lopez attempted to abduct 12-year-old Maria Poveda from the marketplace, also in Ambato, but failed when her mother caught him in the act. So this girl's mother screamed at the top of her lungs. So, of course, a bunch of patrons ran over and the majority of them being women, they all helped her. And he was actually almost lynched on the spot, which is kind of impressive. So he's escaped death, I don't know, a billion times now. He keeps getting lucky. People keep saving him. I know. It's like he gets gang raped in prison. Why didn't they just kill him there? Then he's captured by natives who shouldn't have shown mercy, but they did. 
Then he was damn near lynched on the spot by a bunch of women who were helping this one mother out. Women empowerment. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a movement for sure. But of course he was rescued because the police officers showed up and arrested him. So at this point, he's being transported, right? And Lopez is rambling incoherently and was proclaiming that he was a good person and that he had a clean heart and all this stuff, which actually caused the police to come to the conclusion that they had a madman in their custody. Like they thought he was insane. I believe it's probably he just, you know, had his head beaten in one too many times and was kind of off his rocker. While in custody, Lopez was subjected to a standard interrogation until he told the policeman that he was not Ecuadorian, but a Colombian drifter. Once back at the station, Lopez refused to cooperate and remained silent. In the face of his continuing silence, the police tried a different strategy. So they dressed an undercover detective who was a priest in a prison uniform. They placed him in the cell with Lopez to win the suspect's confidence, swapping stories of real or imagined crimes late into the evening. By the end, Lopez had revealed such repulsive acts of violence to the Padre that he could hear no more and he asked to be taken out of his cell. Detective Pastor Gonzalez said that, quote, For 27 days I hardly slept, afraid I'd be strangled in my bed. I kept a towel wrapped around my throat, but I tricked Lopez into confessing by pretending that I was a rapist too. He boasted to me of murder after murder in Ecuador, Colombia, and Peru. It was beyond my wildest nightmares. He told me everything, end quote. Lopez was confronted with the evidence of his own admissions, and he broke down, making a full confession, which also may have made him the most prolific serial killer of all time. According to Lopez's best estimate, he had murdered at least 110 girls in Ecuador, perhaps 100 in Colombia, and, quote, many more than 100 in Peru. In the course of his confessions, Lopez made an effort to invest his crimes with philosophical excuses. I lost my innocence at age eight, he told investigators, so I decided to do the same to as many young girls as I could. Lopez allegedly sought out one victim immediately after another, his bloodlust becoming insustainable over time. Police were initially skeptical of their suspect's outrageous claims, as Lopez realized that investigators doubted the truthfulness of his claims. He offered to leave them to several burial spots throughout the country. With little else they could do, investigators agreed and put the plan into action. Lopez led detectives to 53 graves in the vicinity of Embado, standing by in chains and leg irons as they unearthed the remains of girls aged 8 to 12. At 28 other sites, searchers came up empty in the wake of raids by predatory animals, but the police were now convinced. Originally charged with 53 murders, Lopez saw the ante boosted to 110 as a result of his detailed confessions. As Mayor Victor 
Lascano, director of the Ambito Prison, explained, if someone confesses to 53 that you find and hundreds more that you don't, you tend to believe what he says. Lascano also told reporters in response to questions that, quote, I think his estimate of 300 is very low because in the beginning he cooperated with us and took us each day to three or four hidden corpses. But then he tired, changed his mind, and stopped helping, end quote. The change of heart occurred too late to let the monster of the Andes off the hook. No information is readily available on the Lopez's brief trial. However, we do know that on January 25th, 1981, Lopez was convicted in Ecuador on multiple counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison, a penalty that normally amounts to 16 years in custody. With time for good behavior, Lopez would have been eligible for parole in early 1990. However, Colombia was waiting for him to be extradited to face murder charges in their country and in Colombia the penalty for murder was death by firing squad. Okay, so I just want to talk about the fact that even in 1980 if you were convicted of multiple murders, I mean he was charged with what 53 murders, right? And they knew he was responsible for hundreds. They were just trying to prove it or whatever, right? Whatever they were doing. I don't want to speak for Ecuadorian authorities, but I will say that they were still investigating and trying to resolve some missing persons cases in children's, right? It's interesting to me that even in 1980, when he was going through trial and everything like that, that they came to the conclusion that he should serve 16, one six years in prison and that that's good enough. That's wild to me. In the United States, even in 1980s or today, that is not a sentence that you would receive. And then even if they sent him to Colombia, his sentence carried the weight of death, which there are states that have that weight here as well. However, by firing squad is not something that the United States has. And so it's very interesting to me to see that he only got 16 years and that if he were to be extradited to another country, that he would have been shot, basically, legally. Right. That's a completely different world than what we live in here in the United States, especially today. Because innocent until proven guilty. So it's pretty interesting yeah. to me. On August 31st, 1994, Lopez was released from prison on good behavior. But an hour later, he was arrested as an illegal immigrant and deported to Colombia. Lopez attempted to stop his deportation because obviously he knew it was coming. He was going to be convicted of murder and sentenced to death by firing squad. So he was obviously trying to stop this deportation. And how he did that is he claimed that he had gained Ecuadorian citizenship in 1974, but he could not produce any evidence of this. In Bogota, Lopez protested that he was subjected to a medical evaluation demanding to be set free even though an angry mob had gathered outside with the intention of lynching him. However, nobody had ever charged Lopez for murder in Colombia. So they extradited him on charges that they had never actually filed against him. So still reluctant to set him free, which rightfully so in my opinion, the authorities moved Lopez to El Espinal. 
where he had resided decades earlier with his mother in hopes that one of his older victims would come forward. Eventually, a local woman named Alba Sanchez claimed that in 1979, she had seen Lopez walk away with her daughter from her home before the little girl's body was found, raped, and strangled outside of the town. This modus operandi was identical to Lopez's known murders in Ecuador. So Lopez was charged with this crime, even though they had zero evidence to prove that it was him, just a sneaking suspicion. And he was charged with murder, found guilty, and that trial was super short. (laughs) And his defense attorney basically saved him because he demanded that he should be subjected to a psychiatric evaluation first. So, of course, Lopez underwent this psychiatric evaluation, and he was ruled insane in 1995. So as a result, they couldn't sentence him to death. He was committed to a mental hospital instead of being sent to prison. So his defense team obviously did wonders for him. But this goes back to what I was saying before, that it's wild that this is even happening in other countries because it's hard for us to imagine as Americans, again, we're innocent until proven guilty in the face of the law. And so you can remain in custody during your trial. However, you are not convicted of a crime until the judge says so. So for them to just be like, Hey, anybody want to step forward and try to claim that this guy did something that he shouldn't have done until somebody stepped up, they were just going to kind of wait it out. And then somebody finally stepped forward and they're like, okay, yep, he did it. Give him the charge and he's guilty. I mean, they were just looking for any reason to to get rid of him is what it appears to me. And that may be normal for some of our listeners who are in other countries, probably screaming through the microphone right now. Like not all countries are like that. It's just weird for us Americans to sit back and realize like, wow, you know, not only is this in our world history, but it's wild that some countries out there still don't have the same standards that we do. It's just abnormal to, for us to hear about because it's so heavily prevalent here in America. In 1994, Lopez gave an exclusive one-time only interview to National Examiner correspondent Ron Leitner. The following are excerpts and quotes taken from that interview by Lopez. Quote, I am the man of the century. No one will ever forget me. Quote, I went after my victims by walking among the markets, searching for a girl with a certain look on her face, a look of innocence and beauty. She would be a good girl, working with her mother. I followed them sometimes for two or three days, waiting for when she was left alone. I would give her a trinket, like a hand mirror, and take her to the edge of town, where I would promise a trinket for her mother. I would take her to a secret hideaway where prepared graves waited. Sometimes there were bodies of earlier victims there. I cuddled them and then raped them at sunrise. At the first sign of light, I would get excited. I forced the girl into sex and put my hands around her throat. When the sun rose, I would strangle her. It was only good if I could see her eyes. It would have been wasted in the dark. I had to watch them by daylight. There was a divine moment when I have my hands around a young girl's throat. I look into her eyes and see a certain light, a spark, suddenly go out. The moment of death is enthralling and exciting. 
Only those who actually kill know what I mean. When I am released, I will feel that moment again. It took the girls 5 to 15 minutes to die. I was very considerate. I would spend a long time with them, making sure they were dead. I would use a mirror to check whether they were still breathing. Sometimes I had to kill them all over again. They never screamed because they didn't expect anything would happen. They were innocent. My little friends like to have company, he said. I often put three or four into one hole, but after a while, I got bored because they couldn't move. So I looked for more girls, end quote. In 1998, a new evaluation deemed him sane, and he was released on $50 bail in the condition that he should continue receiving psychiatric treatment and reporting himself to police every month. However, he made bail and did neither. The news of Lopez's release caused hysteria in Ecuador. It was rumored that he had been seen in the northern part of the country around this time, but this was never confirmed. Lopez was seen next again in El Espinal when he knocked on the door of his own mother, Benilda. The impoverished woman admitted that she thought he was going to kill her because he had blamed her for every pain in his heart in a televised interview years earlier, and she had pleaded in turn for Lopez to never be released. However, Lopez calmly told her to get on her knees because he wanted to give her his blessing. Afterwards, he demanded his inheritance in life, arguing that he had no means to sustain himself. His mother gave him a few bills that she kept in a drawer and an old bed that Lopez took apart to sell for pieces. She never saw him again, and his current whereabouts are still unknown to this very day. In 2002, the Colombian police launched an Interpol order of arrest against Lopez for a new murder in El Espinal that fit the modus operandi of his earlier crimes. Different rumors claim that he is living in Tolima Department, Colombia, as a homeless man in Bogota, or even that he was murdered after some relatives of his victims put a bounty on his head. Throughout this episode, we've talked a little bit about Lopez's modus operandi, but I just want to summarize it here for you. Lopez targeted young girls aged between 8 and 12, mostly from poor, rural, Amerindian communities. He had no racial preference, and he admitted to having been tempted at times to abduct Caucasian girls, including foreign tourists, but he refrained from doing so because they were more closely watched by their parents. He would stalk the girls for an unknown amount of time and then abduct them. He would bring them to a secluded place where he would rape them and then strangle them to death. Afterwards, he would bury their bodies in shallow graves in groups of three or four. Before they decomposed too much, he would return to play tea parties with a group of corpses. We also mentioned that he was deemed clinically insane, so I just wanted to go through his diagnosis really quickly as well. Lopez was diagnosed as a sociopath with avoidant personality disorder, but not as a true psychopath. Growing up while watching his mother have sex made him assimilate sex with affection, and being thrown out as a result of displaying that affection with his sister made him conclude that affection was something to be punished. His subsequent childhood abuse and deprivations made him assume that destroying childhood innocence was both natural and desirable, and that by killing his victims, chosen because of their perceived innocence more than their looks, 
he was sparing them from a life of poverty and further abuse. I also want to make a note that Lopez only did one interview ever, and it was published by quite a few media outlets, but there was nothing else that we ever received from him as far as a book or another interview or a biography or nothing like that that he wrote himself. So aside from the unsighted local accounts, Lopez's crimes first received international attention from the interview that was conducted by Ron Leitner, and which we're also going to read a little bit from that here in just a second as well. But these interviews were widely published first in the Chicago Tribune, then in the Toronto Sun and the Sacramento Bee, and over the years in many other North American papers and foreign publications, including the National Enquirer, Apart from Leitner's account and the two brief Associated Press wire reports, the story was published in The World's Most Infamous Murders, written by Bohr and Blundell, and has found its way into many serial murder anthologies, both in print and online. So as Kylie said, I'm going to read you a clip of the article titled Serial Killer Released, in the Edit International, written in 2009 by Ron Leitner. Quote, meeting the world's worst modern serial killer required preparation. Pedro Alonso Lopez was held in the center of an otherwise abandoned section of Ambato's prison on top of a mountain far from other prisoners for their safety and his. There was an unofficial reward believed raised by the families of his victims of 250,000 US dollars for any guard or prisoner who killed him. I was searched for weapons as I went through three levels of security. Taking off my shoes, I tiptoed down the corridor and peeked over the edge of a small barred window into his cell. The monster of the Andes, as he was known, was on the floor, sitting against the wall, huge hands flexing. On the wall behind him were faded clippings of his mass murder trial. I sat on the other side of the corridor, turned on my flash, and pre-focused my camera on the barred window. Somewhere down the corridor behind me, a guard made a hissing sound. The guards liked to torment the serial killer who feared they would kill him. The monster stirred. He growled and ran at the window, grabbing the bars and snarling. That's when I captured the picture showing his rage and his powerful killer hands. And this picture will be posted on our social media for reference, by the way. Um, back to the article. Um, the next day, I returned with the warden while guards with cocked pistols watched through the little window and from the larger entrance to his cell in which he had been kept in for 12 years in solitary confinement. I stepped into the cell. From outside the bars, the prison director, Victor Lascano, introduced me and I foolishly and innocently held out my hand for the monster to shake. He was surprised. Probably no one had ever touched him since he was locked away in 1980, following a three-year killing rampage. 
He stared into my eyes, then gripped my hand and began squeezing. His enormous hand, which had exerted so much pressure on young girls' necks that many had their eyes popped out by the pressure, now turned his power on me. My hand went numb. If I'd been wearing a ring, my fingers would have broken. Instead, the ends of my fingers began to swell up like tiny red balloons, gorged with blood. I was about to scream out when the monster suddenly stopped and smiled. That's when he decided to grant me the one and only interview he ever made. He now invited the director of the prison in with me, but only if the director's pretty daughter, who was acting as an interpreter, came in also. He told the warden he had not touched a woman in a dozen years. He would go forward with the interview, but only if he could touch the hands of the warden's daughter. Everyone gasped. We three were now in a cell with the monster. Guards aimed pistols through the bars. If there was shooting, I hoped I wouldn't be shot. Then the brave girl held out her hands and the monster of the Andes very carefully touched the ends of his fingers to her wrists. Would he grab her by the throat and kill her? The moment passed. He released her and began talking. Later, he told us that at about 26, she was too old to attract him. With pistols aimed at him continuously so he wouldn't suddenly strangle any of us, the monster of the Andes answered every question, questions no serial killer had ever answered before. What is it like to kill? Why kill it all? And why such young girls? Just as other men shave, shower, and eat, Lopez killed on a regular basis, slaying two, sometimes three girls a week, every month, every year, over three-year-long murder rampage, end quote. I really like that article because it kind of gives us an insight as to what that interviewer had to go through in order to collect that intel so that the rest of us know Lopez just even a little bit more. So it's really interesting that that was his view and his observations and his take on his surroundings during that interview, not just the content, you know, that we read earlier about like what Lopez had actually said, but actually what the interviewer experienced while being in his presence. And he went into such good detail to describing like every single movement, every thing that everyone was doing, like he clearly put into words. So like, I feel like I was in the cell with him, like, which is crazy. And like, I, oh, like you said earlier, my skin is crawling. Like there's no way that is brave to be in there with him. It's brave and impressive. I agree with you. Like I, you feel like you're in the cell with him. It's really interesting to hear of how like he kept the articles about his trial in his cell i mean you hear about most people keeping pictures of their family and stuff like that but he didn't have that and nor did he want it i mean that wasn't his desires that's not what he grew up with that wasn't his norm that wasn't you know and so it's really interesting to me to see like okay you can have a personal belonging even though you've been in solitary confinement for you know over a decade and what do you want in here? And he's going to say, Oh, uh, I'd like to keep news article clippings of my own trial that put me here. Thanks. 
Like that's crazy to me. It's crazy and it's like gloating mm-hmm. and it's like it's kind of sad and like pathetic honestly cuz like you said like most people have family or like pictures of I don't know the beach or like something and he's over here just like reminiscing. I feel like that's his problem though. Like he puts so much like blame, thought, energy and effort into like the past which is why I feel like he ended up where he did. But like he blame, he, he plays the blame game a lot. And I feel like he's probably just building up more and more anger. Like, Oh, I'm here because of these girls, even though it was his own self that put him there. But like, he's just got so much anger and like, he just lives so much in the past. I just, I don't know. It's crazy to me, but I think that that's probably why he wanted those clippings in there. So he could just continue to be mad because that's all he knows how to do. He only knows how to blame. Well, and think about it. What does he have in his life to remember or to reminisce or to live off of or whatever? I mean, what was getting him by when he wasn't in prison? It was those killings, those murders, those moments that he had. So what does he have to reminisce and hold on to and get him through his sentence and all that kind of stuff? What does he have? Uh, Well, news clippings. That's about it. I wonder if he ever regretted, like, not documenting things about each of the girls, you know, like keeping a log or taking pictures or... I don't think he cared enough about these people to even like keep any sort of like list. Like it was just kind of like, yep, next one, next one, next one. I mean, I guess I'm just saying like for him, not for them, but like for him, like he, cause he always said like, you know, oh, in that moment it was so great. Da da da. Like you li- he lived for those moments. That's why he killed so often and da da da. But it was interest. It's interesting to me that he didn't keep souvenirs. He didn't, write anything down you know that was ever found he didn't take pictures he didn't do nothing to like keep that and so then now he's in solitary confinement for whatever 10 20 years and he in by i mean he has nothing you know what i mean he has nothing to live those moments out vicariously through he doesn't have any contact on the outside he doesn't have you know what i mean he has nothing to remember those by yet it was an abrupt halt i mean he went from three a week to zero for over a decade or for way more than that i mean ever as far as we know right right and i feel like probably his like keeping a ledger was like going back and playing tea party with them but he didn't Mm -hmm. think about like oh if i get caught like i'm not gonna be able to do this he was just like oh yeah you know and like no disrespect but like they said in the article like he was not very well educated so i mean right yeah remember that that family took him in and tried to give him an education and he ran away so i wonder if he even knew how to write and the only reason i would say that he knew how to read it all is because he kept those articles but it makes and like that's something that you would need to eventually learn a little bit throughout life as far as you know like needing directions and he traveled a lot you know so needing directions or reading menus or you know there's like certain things that you have to to do in life that to get by so he could probably read enough to get by and probably reread that same article over and over i would imagine that's the only thing he had you know so he probably had it memorized verbatim who knows but um as far as writing and stuff you're right like he probably didn't do that because he couldn't he probably did not have that skill right 
I also commented earlier on um, all of the publications, and I just want to add to that really quickly. Um, in 2006, the edition of the Guinness World Records book credited Lopez as being the most prolific serial killer. But what's interesting about that, and the reason I didn't list it uh, in the publications, is because the listing was actually later removed because there were a bunch of complaints about it being in the book because it made it like a competition out of murderers. So they removed it, and in my opinion, rightfully so, because people can't take anything for face value and have to one-up everything and be better. Oh, well, he made the Guinness Book of World Records for being the most prolific serial killer, and I want a world record, so that's the one I'm going to try to one-up. Like, that's not (laughs) what we want, right? So I get that as far as reasoning for having to remove it. I could see that. I could definitely see that happening. Yeah, me too. And we hear that a lot and we see that a lot. Oh, the most prolific killer in, you know, the world, the most prolific killer in this country or that state or, you know, in this era or whatever. And people try to like title it. And honestly, they're all horrific serial killers But the rate that Lopez killed and the amount of children that went missing and have even to this day never been recovered due to animals, weather, whatever the case may be, is an insane amount. And the fact that there's people in an authoritative position that believe that 300 is a low number for him is outrageous. And it honestly makes me wonder if the flash floods did not come through and uncover those four victims and had the authorities relooking at things and kind of start doing a little bit more work on it. And then right at that same time, He tries to kidnap another girl. What would happen if those circumstances didn't fall into place just like that, back to back to back, had the perfect storm not been created and he was not apprehended at that time? It just makes you wonder all kinds of things about where our world and that area would be even today. I mean... You know, would they still be considering that assume that there was child slavery and prostitution rings like they had initially thought? Yeah, it definitely makes you wonder like where we would be at today and where they would be at today and how things would definitely be different, I feel like. For sure. It's I want to say everything happens for a reason. He was caught, right? Which is great. And thank God he was. But it's interesting because... It went on for so long as far as the number of victims, right? Even three, even if you did three every single day, that's just an alarming rate. And even, you know, a week at that rate, that's a long time. And it was a lot longer and a lot, you know, a lot of victims. So just that rate was of a really ridiculous amount of victims. Yeah, I agree. Another thing that I wanted to talk about really quickly before we get into our discussion questions 
is that so we know serial killers have patterns and they have been studied uh, by behavioral science professionals and they've come to many conclusions over the years right and things to kind of look for as far as patterns go and one of the chilling patterns that emerges about serial killers in general is the number of them that have reported to have been children of prostitutes. So how his mom was a prostitute, had 13 kids, and he was the seventh of 13 kids. That is already right there, a check in the serial killer box. From the moment he was born, him and all 12 of his siblings hit that box of potential serial killer attribute. That is so interesting. Yeah. So like Henry Lee Lucas, uh, we haven't done his case, but he is one of the century's most infamous serial killers. And apparently he started his rampage with the rape and killing of his own mother, who was a prostitute. He raped his own mom? Yeah, the rape and killing of his own mother. Oh my gosh. And we haven't done this case on this podcast. It's very interesting. But again, there we go with one of the century's most infamous serial killers, a prolific serial killer. Like, just again, like, basically, he kills a lot. He's a prolific asshole is what it comes to. That, like caught me way off guard okay I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. as we have mentioned many times on this show the netflix series mindhunter is a show that crime addicts is a big fan of okay and a former fbi profiler robert wrestler who's on that show He said, quote, it's part of the profile. Serial killers very often have obsessions of some kind with their mothers, a love-hate relationship in popular language. These moms usually aren't candidates for mother of the year, although they aren't necessarily abusive either. The common thread seems to be the sexual element, mothers who were very seductive, who had many sex partners of which the son was aware. Of course, the children of prostitutes are more likely to be exposed to this type of behavior, end quote. So we can clearly see that this profile that Wrestler has described does fit Pedro Lopez to a T. His mother was a prostitute and he definitely had that exposure. And then he was later picked up by predators and assaulted himself. So he definitely checks that box for the purpose of profiling. It's almost like he, when he got, when he was in prison the first time and he got like gang raped by those four other inmates, it's almost like a switch like flipped in his head and he was like no more i'm Mm -hmm. not gonna be a victim anymore i'm gonna be the one preying on these like other like innocent young people that can't defend themselves like i'm gonna be the one inflicting the pain like i am not gonna be the one that's getting hurt anymore after however many years of being a victim i guess yeah absolutely And he got his revenge and killed the men 
that also I feel like flipped a switch like, oh, that kind of felt good. You know, like I'm the one inflicting pain and I'm now heavily respected, right? Like what was the what was the response to that? Oh, we're only going to give you two years because we should probably do something. But really, we're just going to say it was in self-defense and move on. Like, of course, his thought process is, wow, I can kill all these people and get away with it. Great. You know? Right. And, like, going back to, like, why did he kill, like, these young girls? It's because he puts himself in that victim role and, like, blames these people that have never met him and are way younger than him that, like, why his childhood was so bad and why he got kicked out of his home. And so, like, he blames them, which I feel like is why he turns around and then goes and kills a bunch of them because it's their fault right it's almost like he sees himself in these helpless kids exactly and it's hard because you definitely have to hold him accountable right but at the same time it's like but damn he didn't know anything else he literally was abused from day one by his mom beating him and his siblings And then when he tries to copy her behavior, she kicks him out and says, I never want to see your face ever again. I even read an article that she drove him to the edge of their village and dropped him off, but he worked his way home. So then the next day, she took him on a bus to the edge of the country and dropped him off and was like, peace out and came back. So I don't know how true that is because I could only find one article and I couldn't confirm it, which is why we didn't say it earlier. But that just goes to show that she truly wanted nothing to do with him. Also, she probably couldn't afford him. You know, that's just another mouth to feed. That's another child to put in school. That's whatever. Right. So she was like, Oh, I have a reason to get rid of you. And it's a valid one as a mother. Great. I'm out. You got to go. You know what I mean? And she just kicks him out. Then regardless of how he got kicked out, right. He was picked up immediately sodomized and assaulted. And then after that, it was just one thing after another. He was in prison where he was assaulted. And then he was captured by the Indians who assaulted him. Then he was, I mean, it just continues on and on and on. And so he just is like, okay, well, that's what people in my life do. That's my norm. So I'm going to do that to others because that's right. You know, in his mind. But that doesn't make me feel any remorse for him or anything like that because the joy that he was getting out of that is absolutely not normal right and you could almost make the argument like well yeah that is his norm but like he didn't have a moral compass telling him that that's not okay like that's not like a standard thing that people do and honestly like i don't know if he even had that moral compass like i don't know if you could even say that about him and like where where he was you know like he was in a third world country and you know so you can't really speak to like the social norms i guess us sitting over here in america being like oh people don't just walk around raping and killing people when like i don't really think that that's what they do down there but like it's almost like it's almost like he was like he didn't know necessarily if it was wrong or not 
But part of me is like, okay, so I agree. And then I go back to, well, if he didn't know right from wrong, why did he bury them and hide them? You know what I mean? And why did he have to be so sneaky and secretive and, and kidnap them when no one was looking? And he knew to choose not the tourists because they were looked after more heavily and all those kinds of things. So it's like he learned whether he knew right from the beginning or not. Maybe that's that was his downfall, right? Like he made a mistake with the native 12-year-old that he attempted to kidnap. He made the mistake and he learned from his lesson. So his moral compass, I guess we'll say, is evolving so that he is learning right from wrong or at least how to get away with it for longer. Right. Well, and then I just, I keep going back and forth because then I go back to like when he's in the cop car and he's like, I'm a good person. Like, okay, so obviously he does know that like what he's doing is wrong. But it's almost like he just doesn't care. Like, Right. And when they tried to deport him, he was like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I, I have citizenship here. He already knew. He knew he was going to say that the moment they mentioned two words, fire squad, right? So he did know, but it was like very much a learned behavior over time, I feel like. I don't feel like he walked out in the street with that knowledge. That was not something that he was taught like most children are, you know, right from wrong and stuff like that. But it definitely evolved. And instead of him learning, oh, I I can't do that because that's not normal. He said, well, I still want to do it. So how can I learn to do it and get away with it? You know what I mean? He knew it was wrong, but he continued doing it and learned how to get away with it for longer than most, obviously. Right. It's also a scary topic really quickly jumping a little bit to think about that you can kill as many people as you want in Ecuador and do like 16 years and be back on the streets to just kill more. Yeah. That's insane to me. And I don't know what their local laws are. I was trying to figure it out, but I don't think it's changed much. It might be like 20 years, but then there's like, you know, good behavior and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to me sitting in the United States where, you know, people can serve their whole, the rest of their life in prison And that is our norm. Like you take that person off of the street. They can also, there are also, you know, sentences and states here in America where you can serve a certain number of years and be eligible for parole and from good behavior and all that kind of stuff. But my question is, how do you determine that someone has good behavior when they've been in solitary confinement for 15 years and then be like, oh yeah, they had great behavior because Based on how he reacted when the guards were like hissing at him when the interviewer was there for just one day and how he like jumped and snarled at them and freaked out. I can't imagine that he had great behavior, yet they let him out anyway. Yeah, I can't believe that because like you hear about here people getting like, oh, you killed four people, so you're going to serve four life sentences. Right. not uh, well <laughs> a measly 16 years that's like one one sentence almost like for one murder right not even because isn't it 25 in the united states yeah but what i'm saying is right. like he didn't get 16 per body he got right. one term of 16 years he didn't even serve that and he was released it's insane yeah, that's, 
that's insane. I feel like they're, I have never been to Ecuador, but I feel like their legal system needs to be analyzed and revamped. (laughs) Yeah, if we have any Colombian or Ecuadorian listeners or anybody that has ever been there or has any more knowledge, please write in and let us know because I'm interested to see how things have changed since then until now or if things are still exactly the same or if they've evolved at all or anything like that but we would be super interested to know because it sounds to me like that's like a playing ground for murderers you know what i mean the weight that is sitting on their shoulders is a hell of a lot less than it is in other parts of the world such as the united states i wonder if this case specifically like had an influence in changing things for them down in ecuador like in oh, yeah, regards absolutely. to like sentencing and stuff like oh well we don't want another pedro lopez you know so <laughs> we gotta like up the stakes here or something you know like i wonder right. if this is a because i feel like this is such a like he's such a successful serial killer right um but not one that necessarily a lot of like us in america have heard of because he's not from here Right. And it's almost like we haven't even heard of this person, but yet how could we have not heard of him? You know, like right. he killed three over three around three hundred people. Like that's right. crazy to me. And so I'm just wondering if maybe like maybe it's more talked about and more widely known and we're just like blind here in America or something, but right. uneducated um, <laughs> uneducated about international serial killers. But right. I don't know. I just I'm I'm curious if this case had like or if other countries like Colombia was like, hey, yo, <laughs> we can't have like what what Ecuador is doing with this case. So we gotta we gotta fix this or we gotta like redo this or something. We gotta have this a better like set of standards for not allowing this to happen again because that was definitely a bad stain on their country's history i feel like right and if it didn't then it should have in my opinion yeah for sure so going off of that that actually is one of my discussion questions for you so what do you believe that his victim count is like do you think it's over or under the 300 that's estimated over I think without a doubt it's over. I agree. Because like they were like they were saying, like he was uh he was cooperating greatly in the beginning of the investigation when they, you know, were able to come up with a roundabout number, but and then he stopped cooperating. And I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like he definitely was over easily. I agree, yeah, because he stopped cooperating once he realized he was going to be charged with these murders then he was like oh i'm not cooperating anymore and it's like interesting to think of how many more there could have been yeah i don't know i guess we will probably never know though because you know like you said before they kind of chalked it up to being like child sex rings and slavery and stuff like that so it's like and like you know how many natural disasters are going to have to happen to come up with all of these bodies all of these bodies you know yeah absolutely and it's hard too in a world where there was a lot less technology and dna was not as advanced right so 
it's hard to track somebody's footsteps that doesn't have a digital footprint at all, you know, and is jumping between countries. And, you know, once you're on the streets for that long, you end up with certain ties in certain places, you know, and then like the fact that they were doing drugs and he was a kid and all that kind of stuff. Like you just never know the everlasting damage and impact that that had or the connections and ties to what communities, you know, did he have any? And if he did, what were they? I mean, that would be so difficult to track down because now you're looking for other transients and how do you find them? You know, cause they neither, they don't have a digital footprint either, you know? So it's just, it's hard to track him down where he could have been or where his footsteps were and how many victims he po- could have possibly had. Like, was he in this country on this day at this time when this particular victim went missing? You know, I mean, they would have, it'd be a lot easier to do now than it would be back then. But it's just interesting how long he got away with it in the time period. I mean, if, you know, fast forward 20 years, I don't think he would have been as successful or whatever as a serial killer as he was. And so I think he got lucky in a sense that the time frame and the location as far as like part of the world that he was victimizing just so happened to be in his favor. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we agree to the victim count of being over 300. It's too easy, I think. And at three a week, that's a lot. Um, And then my other one is, where the fuck is he? (laughs) Is he alive? If so, where is he at? If not, where did he die and how? I mean, where where is this guy? I very strongly believe that he is not still alive. Um, when did he die? Shortly after he was released. And how did he die? The streets got him. Finally. They finally caught up with him. Nobody was there to save him. And he got it. He got he got bopped. I don't care what it was. He's, I feel like, gone. I agree. And I think there's some things to think about here. Number one is think about all of those victims, brothers, fathers, uncles. I mean, how many cousins, how many people had to die that have you know, multiples of family that just want justice for their loved one. And they're not going to get that because they decide to release this man. How many of them do you think are not going to go and do the exact same thing to him that he did to the other girls as far as kidnapping, killing and burying them in a grave somewhere? Yeah, well, and then I bet you that um, Bounty was still out on his head for yeah. the, from the victim's families. Like, somebody's going to get him. He's not mm-hmm. going to, you know? And I'm sure he was very well known all over the newspapers, newses, and all that stuff back, you know, and in different countries. And I'm sure he was not able to continue breathing um, because he was wanted. When he was released, that set the town 
in a rampage of worry, fear, right? Like who's not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to go just take care of this once and for all. You know what I mean? However, I do wish somebody came forward and took the credit for it so that we knew for sure. Because now that we don't know, we're all left to be like, oh, should we be scared at night? You know, is our daughter going to get kidnapped at the market? Like, you know, his old MO, is that going to start happening again? You know, so I wish somebody came forward so that we knew, but. I bet you, I bet you they did, but in their own little like um, towns, villages, whatever you want to call it. um, I bet you they were like, yep, he's gone. You know, don't worry, Mm -hmm. you know, but like Mm -hmm. unofficially, probably because either they didn't want to get charged or just the police were like, yeah, okay. Like, (laughs) all right, cool. Good job. You know? But so I don't think it it will ever officially be made public, but I bet you the people that are locals there, they know, they know what happened to him. And, you know, they, they, I feel like know that they don't have to worry about him anymore. You know? Yeah. uh, I agree with that. The other aspect to that that makes me believe that he's not alive is the fact that we don't have victims and bodies turning up, you know, by the masses or even at all ever since. Another option would be that maybe he didn't even get released from prison. Either um, you know, like a guard got him or I feel like maybe they um, took him and instead of dropping him off where he was supposed to be dropped off, they just kind of offed him right there. And then they went and collected the money because. Yeah, absolutely. And then they get to collect the bounty and move on and they got away with it because they're, you know, officers of the law and there's nobody that would ever prove it. You know, I'm sure that's a really valid conspiracy theory right there. And I'm actually kind of on board, honestly. And then the last question I have for you is nature or nurture? We all know this is my favorite. I just want to discuss this one because it's super interesting. Um, For me, I feel like this is nurture. Okay, why? Um, Well, because I feel like he was... Yeah, he was like born into a not ideal um, situation. Um... And everything, every situation and um, incidents that he had um, as a child, I feel like groomed him almost. I mean, no, not every kid that was in one of those like street gangs turned out to be a child rapist and a serial killer. But it didn't help with his already like messed up head about, you know, like his mom And her past and stuff, not having a dad, having a million and a half siblings, like, and then being kicked out because, well, I was just doing what my mom does, you know, and then boom, hit the streets, gets abducted and then joins the street gang and then steals and, you know, does all these things. I feel like he was kind of groomed for this lifestyle, unfortunately. But again, I mean... I go back and forth because he did, you know, make these choices and stuff and every adult and every person has their own choices that they make. You know, you have two things in front of you. You can either pick A or B, but 
goes back to he's not very well educated. You know, he doesn't necessarily know. That's probably something that took him a long time to learn. So I, I don't know. I think nurture. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree. I think it is a strong argument either way because of his father being a cheater and not a very good man. I mean, we don't even know what else he was involved in. Like when he was killed, was that because he was a part of something that he shouldn't have been? Or was that just by happenstance, you know, a stray bullet caught him? Like, you know, we don't really know the details behind that, but it doesn't sound like his father was an upstanding citizen and clearly his mother was not either, right? She didn't have too many uh, nurturing bones in her body, I would say. But it's interesting. So you can make the argument on nature, I believe, but I definitely am siding with the nurture side as well. For all the reasons that you said, I I definitely agree and think that he is a product of his environment. So those are actually all of the discussion questions I have today. I know we did a lot of discussion topics throughout, but those are the, the main underlying questions that I had for you today. So addicts, jump over to Facebook. Search for Crime Addicts Pod. Scroll down. You'll see our Amazon link. Make sure you like, follow, share, use the link, all that jazz. Then keep scrolling down and you're going to see discussion questions posted for episode number 20. And in the comments, answer these questions. Number one, what is his victim number? Is it over or under 300? Number two, is he alive? If so, where is he at? If not, when did he die and how? And number three, nature or nurture? Comment, let us know what your guys' thoughts are. Again, if you have any experience or knowledge regarding the local laws in these parts of the world or have any insight that you can provide to us, We would be super interested to hear it and would appreciate the feedback. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode on the monster of more than just the Andes, but also in my dreams. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.